Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and folks, on today's show, our interview with Steve Gorham. Hey, Ron, how's it going? It's going great, Ed. I can't believe this. We, uh, I, I read Steve's book, Green Breakdown. Uh, just a few weeks ago, finished it and reached out to him, and uh, we got him on relatively quick, so I'm thrilled. Yeah, yeah, no, we appreciate the turnaround, but let me read a minute and we'll get going on our conversation. Steve Gorham is an informative and engaging speaker who delivers compelling and provocative programs to businesses, universities, and other diverse organizations. He is an effective communicator in the boardroom, lecture hall, and on debate panels regarding energy, industry, agriculture, the environment, sustainable development, economic trends, climate change, and corporate environmental policy. The executive director of the Climate Science Coalition of America and the policy advisor in the Heartland Institute, Steve is an author of several books, including his most recent and the subject of our conversation today, Green Breakdown, The Coming Renewable Energy Failure. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Steve Gorham. Hi, Ed. Uh, great to join you and Ron today. Well, first, Steve, let's go talk a little bit more about your, your background. You started off as an engineer. Talk about that. Yeah, I was... Uh... Uh, engineer, electronic engineer with Motorola for many years and with a number of other companies. Um, became head of a division in my last job, uh, uh, designing uh, components for uh, data centers and other sorts of things. And uh, But for the last uh, 15 years or so, I've been writing books and speaking professionally. And uh, so that's I, I intend to do that as long as I have breath. And it's, it's really a lot of fun. But I'm a little bit of a... Uh, skeptical point of view on uh, climate change and about the energy transition. I think these things are, uh, we're actually, uh, society has gone off in the wrong direction on many, many things. And uh, as my new book talks about, we are going to have a green breakdown that's coming uh, in the in the proposed energy transition. Well, I really love the book. And I think that the strongest case you make is from the engineer point of view, which is the the, the background. Hey, hey, this is just not going to work from a physics, from a from a biological standpoint. I mean, uh, leaving the environmental criticism aside as to whether or not there is or is a, 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 a anthropomorphic global warming and how the impact is. Let's talk about some of the the science behind it. Um, but before we get there, I want to uh, just ask you if you, you, I think, allude to it in the book, but I just want to make sure that it was something you were referring to. I read an article a number of years ago in uh, the, uh, on FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education, on the Great Horse Manure Crisis of 1894. <laughs> and I yeah. believe that's what you were referring to in one of the early chapters, because you, you, you talk about a situation in New York where the a group got together to try to solve this climate crisis at the time. Uh, I think the, the, the it was supposed to go for 10 days, but it only went for three days. They basically threw their hands up and gave up in the middle of the conference. Is that is that do I have that facts right about yeah, that? I, well, I talk, that's some, sometimes I uh, introduce a presentation with that about the uh, uh, I'm trying to remember now the. Uh, uh, the international, well, it was a city conference of 1898 and leaders from all over the world got together in New York City 
to look at problems and they weren't worried about crime or, or poverty or education. They're worried about horse manure because uh, during the 1800s, the omnibus taxi services became increasingly popular. And there were, there were uh, the average New Yorker was taking like 300 horse carriage rides a year uh, by uh, 1890. There were 200,000 horses in New York City, each one contributing uh, uh, manure every day into the stables and the the uh, streets. And it was like three to six million pounds of a year that was being deposited in New York City. And the, uh, the press was saying, uh, you know, it's going to get up to the third story of all the buildings within a few years. And if you were, they were youths that would, uh, would uh, escort people across the streets and clear the horse manure out of the way and, and be paid for that. And they, as you say, they left the conference. They didn't know what to do. But then the, uh, the horseless carriage came along. And within a few years, the problem was solved. But uh, uh, so in those days, the automobile was regarded as a pollution control device, which is quite a bit different than today. <laughs> I just find that story really interesting. In fact, it, it goes to, to there was a, a quote in the the London, the Times of London in 1894, which said, in 50 years, every street in London will be buried under nine feet of manure. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but and I think that that's that, that that that's the cautionary tale and where your book comes in is that it's still many, many people take doing straight line predictions of, of what's happening, assuming that it's just going to continue on forever. Yet there's no evidence that that has ever happened. So and there's so therefore there's no evidence that it's going to continue to happen now. Well, we are the, the world is in the, in the midst of a uh, energy transition, I, and I should say the wealthy nations of the world: United States, Europe, Canada, uh, New Zealand, Australia, and a few others that are trying to force us to a thing called net zero by 2050. Uh, net zero means that we would get rid of all of our coal, oil, and natural gas, hydrocarbon fuels and uh, put in uh, wind, solar, and biofuels. And also we would we would uh, stop all of our carbon dioxide emission emissions, which you do every time you build a house or heat a house or uh, generate electrical power or drive a vehicle or uh, conduct any industry, we emit carbon dioxide. Matter of fact, every person breathes out about two pounds per day uh, of carbon dioxide. So, uh, but this is, is beyond a reach out effort. This is more like a wish and a prayer. It is not going to happen. Uh, and we're going to have this this breakdown within the next 10 years or so, and people are going to scratch their heads, and eventually they're going to demand to the leaders that we return to low-cost, reliable energy instead of this uh, energy transition path that we're on. And, and it's happened in lots of different uh, cases, too. You mentioned in the book that Edwin Drake used his uh, six-horsepower uh, horsepower steam engine uh, to drill through rock to excess oil. And he's the father of the petroleum industry because of the drilling technology. But my question for you is this. Did he save the whales? Well, that was the thing. Yeah, the, uh, they, used use, they used to use whale oil in all the lamps. You're right, until the petroleum came along. But we... Uh, uh, Kids are taught about the Industrial Revolution, but also alongside that is what I call a hydrocarbon revolution. Uh, during the last two centuries, uh, there have been big energy changes. One of those uh, was using coal and natural gas uh, and, and uh, for machinery, to drive machinery. Another was the development of fuels from petroleum to drive our vehicles. And then finally, there was electricity. Uh, which was generated from coal uh, initially and, and eventually natural gas. But those things have revolutionized uh, global energy. 
Uh, the world is, is consuming 30 times the energy that we consumed in 1800. And along with that revolution, we've had tremendous increases in gross domestic product, uh, reduction of infant mortality, uh, years of education going way up, lifespans going way up. It's just been a tremendous boon for society, this, uh, this hydrocarbon revolution. But now we have people, because of the fear of man-made global warming, that want to get rid of all those hydrocarbons and try and replace them with inferior fuels. And that's what the green breakdown is about. And interestingly enough, one of the other technologies that I would consider to be green is almost never mentioned. Uh, well, actually two, but it is, uh, you know, hydro hydropower. Why, why is that yeah. never considered on, under the under the heading of renewable? I mean, what's more renewable than rain and water coming down the river? <laughs> yeah, in some states, it's not even considered renewable energy. But hydro is a very good source of power as long as you have rain and you fill up the rivers. And the, the uh, states that have the have the lowest electricity rates, like uh, Washington, uh, Idaho, some of those states in the United States, it's because of hydropower. And those are probably the only places in the world that can get close to net zero. If you have a lot of your electricity uh, coming from hydroelectric power, like Canada does, Washington State, Brazil, uh, there's a couple others, uh, then you can get close, at least from an electricity front. But as far as vehicles and heavy industry, that's that really doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure we'll we'll get we'll get to there. I think that's one of the the things that I think is is most um, pernicious about this is we'll always see well we're we're reducing the amount of uh, of electric electri energy used in electricity, but it's never really addressed that okay well that's only a, a what thirty percent of the power yeah. that we oh, need. <laughs> yeah. So uh, talk, talk a little bit about that. Why do you, you mean, it's, it's funny that so people are so focused on this electricity thing, but that's just a, a small piece of it. Well, it's probably the easiest thing to, to adjust because wind and solar do provide some power. Hydro provides power. Um, but the, uh, you're right, transportation actually is the biggest user and emitter of, of carbon dioxide. And our industries, we have vast industries uh, such as steel and chemicals and fertilizer and and uh, concrete and, and the essential ingredient for concrete is cement. All of those things use um, coal in the case of China or natural gas and much of the rest of the world uh, to produce uh, their products and they emit vast amounts of carbon dioxide. Uh, cement as well comes from calcium carbonate. And when you produce uh, cement for concrete, you break down the calcium carbonate, you emit a lot of carbon dioxide. So we have vast industries that put a lot of carbon dioxide into the air. And to, to change those over is, is really not going to be uh, cost effective and probably even feasible. And then you mentioned one other in the beginning of your book, with which I had not really thought much about until, until, I, until I read it, and that is healthcare. <laughs> Talk a little bit about the the amount of uh, that he what healthcare uses from from a um, energy standpoint. Well, we have a we get a vast amount of products from petroleum and from natural gas, and um, you know I like to talk about uh, Fatih Birol, who uh, who's the head of the International Energy Agency, and he's sta he's standing there in a suit and a tie and and make saying that we got to get rid of all of of uh, oil and gas we can't use anymore. And, and, you know, his suit is made out of oil and gas and his shoes and his cell phone and everything else he has. Uh, so these things are a tremendous boon to our society. And they produce, as you say, all of our healthcare stuff, all of our medicines, 
uh, come from hydrocarbons. All of our medical equipment, everything from uh, uh, pipettes and stethoscopes and uh, artificial joints, all comes from plastics and other things that are made from hydrocarbons. So they, they really are the foundation of modern society. Uh, they have issues. We need to reduce real pollution like plastic in the oceans. But this idea that carbon dioxide is a pollutant, that's where we've really gotten off base. Well, I'll, perhaps I'll let uh, Ron pick it up there because we're against our first break. want to remind our listeners that they can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. We would love for you to go out and rate this podcast. You can do that by going to ratethispodcast.com slash T-S-O-E. Our first break is sponsored by Bookskeeping Franchise. Check them out at bookskeepingwithanxfranchise.com. America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Ron, we talk a lot about business opportunities. Well, now a great one has become our sponsor, bookskeepingfranchise.com, bookskeeping with an X. That's right, Ed. If you are interested in becoming part of the $4.2 billion bookkeeping industry for a franchise fee of just under $20,000, visit www.bookskeepingfranchise.com. Bookskeeping comes with full training, plus marketing and technical support, and even staffing. Visit the website or call 855 935 2669. Franchise opportunity not available in all states. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise well, welcome back everybody we're here with steve gorham and he's the author of the new book green breakdown the coming renewable energy failure and steve i, I kind of want to set the stage for the listeners a little bit you, you talk about we're transitioning from 
coal, oil, natural gas, so-called hydrocarbon energy. And hopefully we're going to use wind, solar, biofuels, hydrogen, what you call renewable energy sources. But you point out that over 100 nations today have invested over $500 billion a year on renewable energy and electric vehicles. And in the past 20 years, $5 trillion. And yet oil, natural gas, all these hard hydrocarbons are still about 80% of the world's energy. Same yep. as in the 1990s. What happened? Yes. <laughs> have we gotten our money's worth yeah you're right ron it's it's uh uh it is kind of remarkable uh, uh five trillion dollars spent in 20 years uh wind and solar are still tiny i have another graph uh, that i show that's uh i call the energy mountain graph it shows this big rising energy uh consumption globally which has tripled since 1965 and has accelerated since the year 2000 and down at the bottom, I plot wind and solar, and they're like, you know, a total of about 5% between them. There's only been one year in history when when renewables have actually taken a bigger share in, in global, uh, well, I shouldn't say that, have, have actually replaced some of our uh, hydrocarbons. That was in 2020 when we had the COVID crisis. Every other year in history, renewables have not been, been able to even account for the growth of world energy, <laughs> let alone replace our traditional fuels. So we're a long, long, long way from from an energy transition, despite what you hear in the press or from your government leaders. Yeah, you know, and you mentioned this since 1800, global energy consumption has gone up by a factor of 30. Yeah. And, and you also point out that nations with the highest per capita energy use enjoy the highest standard of living. And to me, Steve, this is what this debate is all about. It's about human flourishing. You know, yes, the it only is. way that to cure poverty is for people to consume more energy, not less, but more there's energy poverty out there. And uh, you point out there's 900 million people that don't have access to electricity. Right. And about another 2 billion that have blackouts every day. If you have an air conditioner in the United States, you use more electricity than about a third of the world's people use in a day. And so there's a tremendous need for, electricity and for uh, uh, vehicles and fuel for vehicles, uh, those things are not going to be provided by wind and solar. Uh, you can't build industry. You can't do any really sort of things. Yet we have the wealthy nations of the world trying to force uh, the developing nations of the world uh, not to use coal, oil, and natural gas. Uh, we're not lending on that. I don't believe the World Bank is. China is the only one. They're, they're lending everybody to build uh, coal plants and gas plants and and that's really only the sensible thing for people. The other thing about climate is that the, the way to best cope with climate change is not to try and mitigate Earth's temperatures, but to adapt. Right. Uh, if you're in Africa and 40% of the people in Africa don't even have a fan, it's like one, one in every 20 has an air conditioner, uh, those people need modern energy sources. They need to get wealthier. And once they do, then they can improve their lives. If you're in the Caribbean and you have hurricane issues, uh, you, you don't want to, you know, driving EVs in the U.S. for everybody is not going to stop hurricanes from coming. What you want to do is, is build the income of those nations in the Caribbean so that they can build concrete houses and very sturdy structures. Um, Netherlands has done it for years as far as sea levels, for centuries rather, two or three centuries. They've been building um, uh, 
ocean barriers and building islands to prevent their country from being flooded. But if you think you can build wind turbines uh, that will stop carbon dioxide emissions, uh, that will reduce global temperatures, that will stop the ice caps from melting, that will stop the oceans from rising. I mean, that is a very long chain uh, and probably not going to occur. Uh, what you need to do is build seawalls in New York City if you want to want to uh, protect yourself against the ocean rise, uh, not all these other things. So adaptation is the key and uh, and making sure that the developing world gets to use hydrocarbon fuels uh, so that they can prosper. Th those are really the things we ought to be promoting. Yeah, totally agree. Wealth creation uh, helps with a lot of this. That's what helped us and why we suffer less from natural tragedies and things. Um, I, you mentioned to Ed about heavy industry, you know, fertilizer, chemical, plastic and steel, cement. And you point out that only about 15% of that sector's energy comes from renewables. It, I mean, you can't even make a wind turbine with wind energy, can you? No, you can't. <laughs> uh, you got to have steel or you have to have uh, carbon fiber composites from the chemical industry. And you have to have uh, cranes that lift it up and those cranes run on diesel fuel. Uh, you know, it, I mean, there's just many, many examples. Uh, half of the world's food comes from synthetic nitrogen uh, that is produced uh, by coal in China or by natural gas everywhere else. And all the tractors basically are, you know, if you're not using a horse to pull a wagon, all the tractors are powered by diesel fuel. Uh, so the idea that we can change all of this, you know, just doesn't really make any sense. Uh, it, it isn't going to occur, and uh, it's just going to cause problems for people the more that uh, green energy is is promoted. And it was a real education, Steve, reading your book, because, you know, the proponents of this transition to renewable will talk about carbon capture and storage, right, CCS. And you kind of point out the shortcomings in this strategy of CCS. Yeah, CCS is I, – I, 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 uh, Carbon capture, carbon storage, I attribute to uh, like uh, unicorn ranching. <laughs> you know, it's it's a completely useless exercise. Nobody would be doing it if it wasn't the fear of man-made warming. And all the people that have their careers to do carbon capture and storage, that's a complete waste of human endeavor. But but it is uh, the, nevertheless the International Energy Agency is saying we need to we need to capture about nine percent of our carbon dioxide emissions by the year 2050. But these volumes are astronomical. People don't know what that is. The the first thing I need to say though is that the human emissions of carbon dioxide are relatively small in global terms. Every day, nature puts about 20 times as much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and removes about the same amount as all of our industries. And this is really not disputed. This comes from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So we put a very small amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, but it's very, very big on human terms. Uh, if you, I, I think I use the example of the Drax facility in England, and maybe it's not in this book, maybe a previous one, but Drax is the third biggest power plant in Europe, to, uh, puts almost uh, four gigawatts of electricity out and they uh, they have uh, converted two thirds of the plant to wood chips. And by the way, when you when you burn wood chips, you give up same actually more carbon dioxide than the than if you burn coal. But every day to to uh, to uh, fuel those uh, power plants with wood chips requires 475 hopper cars of wood chips every day, about 20,000 tons a day. 
And then when you burn the 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 uh, wood chips and you produce carbon, it combines with two oxygen atoms before it's exhausted. So you can now double that amount. So it requires about 40,000, you'd have to capture 40,000 tons of carbon dioxide every single day, the equivalent of 950 hopper cars full. You'd have to pipe it somewhere. You'd have to put it underground. These are just vast, vast amounts. And, and to do 9% of the world's CO2 is just, a, it will never occur. Today, we have uh, 39 carbon uh, dioxide capture plants in the world that are capturing about 0.1% of the world's uh, carbon dioxide. And the, the International Energy Agency to reach that 9% of the world per year by 2050, they say we'd have to build, we have got 39 plants globally now, we'd have to build 70 to 100 every single year to 2050 to be able to capture 9%. I mean, the numbers are just astronomical, never never even going to get close to this. But nevertheless, the world is spending, uh, you know, huge subsidies to try and get companies to do this. And nobody would be doing it if we if if, if it wasn't for the fear of man-made warming, because there is no, we've got plenty of carbon dioxide for for uh, beer and soft drinks. So we don't need to capture all this stuff. It's It really is a wasted human exercise. Yeah. And, and it's funny, they talk about market failure, but not the government failure of subsidizing all this stuff that just, it just can't physically work. Yeah. Um, you, you know, I, I want to hit solar and wind with you. You, you have a great uh, term they use in Ghana. What is it? Doom. So a period yeah. of time in which darkness is more prevalent than light. And I think the yeah. Germans have a word for that too, don't they? when it's dark out and the wind's not blowing their electricity goes off. Yeah. Yeah. And you point out the problem with solar and wind is there's three shortcomings. They're dilute energy, they're intermittent yep. and they're costly. Can you kind of walk us through? We've only got a couple minutes, but yeah. So, so we could do the first of those at least. Okay. I'd like to ask audiences. So which is more environmentally friendly, an energy source that uses one unit of land to produce one unit of electricity or a source that uses a hundred units of land, to produce one unit of electricity. Well, anyway, you know, it's got the answer for that. But uh, a guy by the name of Vaclav Smil has written a book on this. And when you look at it, uh, if you take a nuclear, a coal, or a natural gas plant, they're all about the same. But solar requires 100 times more land than these other, the traditional fuels. Wind be, requires between 35 and more than 800 times more land. And if you're using biomass for electricity, it's like 1,500 times more land. So these are these are very poor environmental sort of things. Vast areas of land would be required to make a transition. And again, that's not going to happen. Yeah. And, and I, you know, you, you point out that 500 years of the Tesla Nevada's battery production to make enough batteries to store just one day uh, of what America needs in electricity. Just yeah, that was actually, actually a quote from Mark Mills, the guy who wrote the forward on my, my last book, but uh, right. <laughs> But he's yeah. right. Uh, uh, we have less less than one, about a one one millionth of the electricity we produce globally today is stored in grid scale batteries. One watt out of a one watt hour out of a million watt hours, so it's very very small. And and yet people say that oh we'll we'll store up all this solar and wind and batteries, and yet how are we going to transmit it anywhere? Yeah, it's going to cost a fortune. And and a good rule of thumb is a battery if, if you. If you want to store the energy for a wind or solar for one day, you need batteries that cost about five times as much as the wind or solar system. 
And then the only last half as long. So the real cost for the batteries is 10 times as much as the wind and solar system that you're trying to store for one day. And, and Steve, we got to take a break. But the, the other yeah. thing you point out, which is just brilliant, it, what about the recycling of the wind turbine yeah. turbines and the and the used solar panels? This is going to be a major nightmare, isn't it? It's it, the, every energy source has its problems, and uh, recycling is is a big issue for wind and solar. And we can talk about that if you want. Yeah, I mean they're incinerating these things, aren't they? Cutting them up and incinerating them. They are in some places like Germany. They burn them, and that puts carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, of course. <laughs> well, this is fantastic, Steve. It's flying by, and folks, we'd like to remind you if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Do check out our Patreon channel where you can subscribe and get access to our bonus shows and other content. That's at patreon.com slash TSOE. Of course, that's that channel is now sponsored by 90 Minds. Get ahead, hire a mind. Check their work out at 90minds.com. And now, a word from our sponsors. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials commercials plus bonus content go to patreon.com slash tsoe subscribe now and be free you're worth it streaming live the leader in internet talk radio voiceamerica.com tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise the book is green breakdown the coming renewable energy failure and the author is steve gorham he is with us today on the soul of enterprise and steve um i have a gas stove oven and water heater and fireplace. Uh, should I ditch them? Why or why not? <laughs> well, you shouldn't. And there's been a lot of uh, um, there's been a lot of recent talk about that. Uh, we had some articles come out in January that said uh, uh, your gas stove is a big health issue. And if you look at those articles, they weren't written by the medical industry. They were written by climate folks. The climate folks 
what's behind this is the idea that if we get rid of your gas stove, you emit, you stop greenhouse gas emissions and you lower, you, you can help reduce global warming. But, and the studies are skewed as well. Uh, and by the way, the stove is really the only issue because most every, uh, your furnace is vented to the outside. The other appliances are not something where you'd build up indoor air pollution, but they were saying we're getting more nitrogen dioxide. When you do burn a flame, uh, at about over a thousand degrees Celsius, you do produce uh, 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 nitrogen oxide out of the air, and then it forms nitrogen dioxide, which is a pollutant that can be harmful. The problem is that these are, from the point of view of of the people that once you get rid of your stove, is these are very very low levels, and the the EPA has said below fifty parts per billion in a home, you don't have any health issues. Well, the levels are much lower. So what do they do on these studies? They turn on the oven, they turn on the stove, and they encase the kitchen in plastic. <laughs> so, so they create an artificial situation, and then they can get over the EPA's uh, limit. But, but it's it's very very, uh, uh, it's very very incorrect, and um, people should be uh, uh, confident that their gas stoves are not creating health problems. Um, we've had a tremendous increase in the use of gas over the last 50, 60 years. And the amount of asthma and other things are declining in, in most places. So uh, uh, it, it really is a big misnomer. It's driven by climatism, the fear of man-made uh, global warming, and not be any, by any real health issues. But the reality is also, too, that, that, that natural gas is better for the environment than coal is, which is better for the environment than burning wood is. And, and, and well, it I, is. <laughs> so, yeah, so talk a little I, bit about why that is in the science behind that. I think people miss that completely. Yeah, so, Sometimes I ask audiences, you know, what fuel is most responsible for uh, in, in improving air quality across the world over the last 50 years? And a lot of them don't know, but the answer is natural gas and propane. Uh, my grandfather in the 1950s had a coal furnace in his house. And when it snowed in Chicago, this was in Chicago, after about four or five days, there would be a black film on all of the snow. And that was from all the coal dust from the coal people were burning. And the young folks don't know what uh, what spring cleaning was for. Literally, in the 1950s, everybody would wash the inside of all of their walls to remove the coal dust that was spring cleaning. Well, you don't have to do that anymore because if you put a gas furnace in your home, you reduce the, the particulates in the air by a factor of a thousand. Or if you put it in a home that used to burn wood. Uh, propane as well is a tremendous fuel we're the biggest producer of propane in the world, as well as natural gas and oil. And we now ship more than half of our propane overseas. Most of it's to Asia, uh, to South Korea and Japan and uh, India. In India, uh, Prime Minister Modi has put a, a, a program in place to bring uh, uh, liquefied natural gas, which is basically propane, to uh, millions of families, something like 50 million families. He set up like a thousand centers where people can get propane canisters and then they go home and they cook with it and they and they heat with it and they they're not uh, using dung or the, or using charcoal things that can hurt their lungs and cause premature death so gas is very clean uh it has reduced global pollution the biggest source of, of reducing global pollution but it still produces carbon dioxide when you burn it and so we have every uh every climate group in the world and a lot of our governments trying to ban natural gas uh, very, very foolish. 
One of the things I love about your book, again, is that the science and I'll just going to read this one section about this where you say on January 1st, 2018, California legalized recreational use of marijuana. The very same day, a California law regulating particle emissions from leaf blowers and lawnmowers went into effect. But smokers inhale thousands of times more particles than people breathe ambient air. A single tobacco cigarette or marijuana joint delivers more than 10 billion particles to the user, which is more than a year of breathing California air air i mean talk about non-disputable facts that like i don't think people get their head around this (laughs) people can hold those two things in their mind we got to get rid of particles from leaf blowers and lawnmowers but we're going to let everybody smoke marijuana cigarettes i mean it's just (laughs) it's just goofy another thing is if you have one big forest fire like california's had for two or three days that fire emits more particles than all of the vehicles in california do in a year Uh, We've really cleaned up our air in the United States. If you look at the EPA data, um, all of our major air pollutants are down about 80%. uh, That's lead, nitrogen dioxide, carbon dioxide, ozone particulates. Um, And uh, we've also, uh, our uh, volatile organic compounds out of vehicle uh, tailpipes are down 98% since 1980. So we've done a great job in getting rid of real pollutants. Our air is very clear now compared to what it used to be. But again, we've got everybody jumping on this carbon dioxide thing, which is which is really a waste of energy and waste of time. Of course, one of the answers in my mind, and and this is the one of the ways I, that I kind of judge when I'm talking to somebody who is concerned about this, whether they're truly serious about it, is to ask them, well, what about nuclear? And about half the time they'll say, well, we can't have that either. And I'm like, well, then you're just not serious about fixing this problem <laughs> because it's that has got to be one of the things that's in the mix. If, in fact, we do want to reduce the carbon dioxide in the in 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 the uh, atmosphere. Yeah, nuclear is very non-polluting from a air pollution point of view. It doesn't emit carbon dioxide. Um, it does have a nuclear waste issue, which uh, usually that's just stored right on the nuclear site. That's not a very big thing. Um, but. Uh, you're right. Many environmental groups have, uh, for years and years, they oppose nuclear power as they oppose nuclear weapons. That was through all out of the all of the uh, 20th century. Uh, they're stepping back from that now a little bit, and we actually have some nations that, you know, we've had a big problem. Uh, the, the the Europe uh, the nations in Europe closed more than a hundred nuclear plants in the last two decades, and that's partly why they have such a big energy crisis right now. There. Uh, solely dependent on intermittent wind and solar, and then imported natural gas. And so they have huge prices and huge problems. But we do see some people, Italy, we see uh, Sweden, we see some others that are saying, okay, we're going to build some nuclear plants. Uh, Again, the problem with nuclear right now, I think, is the cost. Uh, A lot of that is from regulatory uh, requirements. But we really need a cost breakthrough in nuclear. The the two new Georgia, the, the big new Georgia plant has cost about $30 billion dollars. It's five or six times more expensive than gas or more. On uh, England, same kind of price for their new nuclear plants. I'm hoping the the modular uh, nuclear plants or the uh, um, the uh, what do I want to say the the molten salt plants can find a way to bring those costs down, and maybe we can get back on the road to to building more nuclear plants. Uh, by the way, the world was getting about 17 percent of its electricity in in the '90s from nuclear. Now it's dropped to about ten percent, so it's been declining as part of the total for a number of years. And yet, it, it seems to be that many of the people today who are concerned about climate change, w- w- if they are of, of uh, our, our age with some gray hair and stuff, they were the ones who were opposed to building nuclear power plants. And had they let that technology progress, maybe we wouldn't be having this conversation. 
Oh, maybe. I mean, they've been opposed to uh, to dams as well. They're trying to close uh, close uh, dams in many places as well, and and uh, so we don't have the hydroelectricity. But uh, uh, you know, there's issues with every electricity source. I do think when the world uh, shakes out of this uh, climate uh, and energy transition mode, uh, the future youth of the world may be out there tearing down wind turbines. So we'll just see. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the criticisms that that um... Uh, my, my, I would make of the environmental movement is that their predictions are are very loosey goosey. They they they'll they they will not not uh, be specific enough. Can you make a prediction that you feel certain with regard to the green breakdown and w- w- one thing that you think is going to happen, say in the next five or ten years? I'll let you ma- decide the time frame. Can, can you give me a prediction that you feel really solid about? One prediction over the next five or ten years. Well, I don't know. The, the green breakdown means about four big things that are negative for people. One is higher energy prices, higher electricity prices. And we have the example right now with California uh, has passed New England, has the second highest electricity prices in the in the country behind Hawaii, about 26 cents a kilowatt hour, double any Western state. And that's green California. That's because of green policies primarily. The second is electricity blackouts. Uh, we're putting in all this intermittent wind and solar, and the average outage for a uh, electricity user in the U.S. used to be about three and a half hours per year. It's gone up to seven or eight hours per year. That's data from the Energy Information Administration. And so we're getting more and more blackouts as we put intermittent wind and solar in. Uh, green energy also means less freedom, uh, getting rid of your forced, forcing you to get rid of your gasoline car or your gas stove. Uh, and adopt electrics. And then there are these transnational energy shocks. Uh, Europe just went through one of those. These things are going to grow and they're going to get worse and worse the more uh, the energy transition is pushed. People are going to demand a return to low-cost reliable energy. Uh, We're seeing some of that now. Texas, by the way, issued 10 electricity shortage alerts in August and September. Their power didn't go off this this fall. But they issued 10 alerts. They said, don't run your air conditioner. Don't plug in your electric car because they had a shortage of electricity. They're now building a bunch of uh, uh, new or they're approving a bunch of new natural gas plants. So, um, you know, we see people stepping back from this and I think they will. But a specific event, I don't know. If I was going to predict one thing, I think they're going to have blackouts in New England uh, in a very cold winter. New England has a shortage of natural gas. Because the state of New York has uh, has blocked all pipelines for two decades, and so they've actually been importing gas from uh, at world prices. Uh, actually, from uh, from Russia a few years ago, they were importing liquefied <laughs> natural gas. But they're going to have to choose between heating homes and and running the the power and keeping the lights on if they get a very cold winter. But I hope these things don't happen. But uh, unfortunately, people have to learn the hard way. I think before they go back to what what is really reliable. Well, this has been great, Steve. Uh, Ron's going to take you the rest of the way home, but want to remind our listeners that they can contact Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. The website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes, previews to upcoming shows as well. Our sponsor for this third break is my employer, Sage. Let's hear from them now. Birdie told me Voice America is on X. Follow us at Voice America TRN. 
Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing Hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com are tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise welcome back everybody we're here with the author of green breakdown the coming renewable energy failure steve gorham and steve let's talk electric vehicles because as Ed no. said, and Greg, they own Teslas, but I'm the opposite. I'm a nice guy. Um, okay. And you point out that the USA has 250 million vehicles, uh, about 80 per hundred, you know, per person. Yeah. And in 2021, only about 8.3% of the 81 million new vehicles sold world, worldwide were EV or hybrids. So, how do you see the, because all the car companies are rushing and pouring money into this. And I know, again, it's because of subsidies because they're losing, they seem to be losing their shirt, except perhaps Tesla. Um, how do you see this, this uh, switch to EVs going for the car companies? Yeah. So electric vehicles are penetrating world markets. Uh, last year, uh, about 14% of, of the uh, new light vehicles sold in the world were electric vehicles. Um, and so there are now on the road um, something like 30 million electric vehicles out of about 15 billion. Uh, I'm sorry, out of 1.5 billion electric uh, uh, total vehicles. So it's about about two percent. Uh, they've been growing very fast, but the problems are starting to mount up. And um, uh, we've now got a situation where in the United States and Europe, people are kind of uh, putting the brakes on. Uh, in the U.S., in the in the companies that are that have dealers, we're seeing the inventories up 300% from last year for EVs. Uh, we see uh, the the EV pickup trucks are not selling very well. The new pickup trucks. It's not clear the the pickup owners want to buy those as replacements. Ford is losing between 40 and 60,000 on each electric vehicle sold. Uh, they project a loss of four and a half billion dollars this year. And so Ford and GM have recently said, well, we're going to delay the new EV models. 
So we've sort of had an over an early adopter phase where the people that, uh, you know, like the cool Teslas uh, have bought them. Um, but often those are second cars. Uh, survey was done by the University of Chicago and uh, they surveyed all the California EV owners and found that they're only being driven about 5,500 miles a year. So they're, they're second vehicles, they're not the primary vehicles. And then we've got other problems with things that are piling up. Um, I met a guy at at, uh, at a conference I was speaking at and his wife had a Tesla. They lived in Cleveland. And uh, a year ago, it got down to 10 degrees Fahrenheit and literally the Tesla would not charge. They didn't have a heated garage. At 10 degrees, it just won't charge. Uh, now I've got a heated garage in Chicago, but I don't want to heat my garage all winter so I can charge an electric car. And we're and and the other thing is the price of the vehicles are you know there's a pretty good premium depending on what model even though we've just had an EV price war somewhere between twenty and fifty percent more and a lot of people are saying well I can't afford uh, to buy an EV at these kind of prices um, I I would have to pay for a charger in my garage as well uh, or I'm driving a little longer distances and public charging is a problem so there's just a lot of issues uh, piling up with electric vehicles. The problem is that we we have governments that are forcing a transition. California, Oregon, Washington, New York, Massachusetts, Maryland are all saying, well, by 2035, you can't buy an electric vehicle. Now, California even has, is, has a law going in effect the 1st of uh, January, uh, the advanced, uh, advanced Clean Fleets Law, which says all the trucks that all new trucks registered to pick up uh, goods at ports or deliver them uh, containers to railheads have to be electric vehicles. Or if you're over a, a, a fifty million dollar uh, trucking company and or fifty, you got fifty trucks. All your new trucks have to be EVs, and these things are very, very inferior to gasoline trucks in terms of mileage, in terms of the cost. Uh, an EV truck costs five hundred thousand uh, dollars, two or three times as much as a diesel truck. Um, in terms of, of ability to charge. Uh, so there's just a lot of issues. Nevertheless, we got all these governments that are trying to force everybody to, to go for an EV and with, with the mistaken idea that uh, we can make the storms less, less frequent or less severe if we all drive an EV. <laughs> and Steve, I'm in California, so we've talked about that trucking law. And yeah. the other thing that's fascinating about it is the battery weighs so much that they have to carry less cargo, which means more trips. Yeah. And and where is the charging infrastructure for these truckers? Apparently it takes quite a while to charge one of these trucks batteries. Yeah, they uh well again a uh a diesel truck you can fuel for 15 minutes and you can go 1200 miles. An EV requires an hour or more to charge depending on the speed of your charger and you can go um about 150 to 330 miles. And you're right, the battery weighs 10,000 pounds more typically on a cab. So your, your freight goes down maybe 20%, depending on how much you're hauling. And so we're going to need a lot more trucks to go distances, a lot more drivers out there. The cost of goods is going to go up, everything from medicine to clothing to food for people across the country. And we've got like 10 other states that want to adopt California's trucking law here. But by the way, this is being opposed now. There are 19 attorneys generals of states and also a bunch of trucking organizations that are suing the EPA on this. And I believe they're suing uh, CARB as well to try and uh, get this, this thing uh, overturned. 
So we'll just see what happens. But it, it's just very, very foolish. And 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 the charging is just astonishing. They just set up a new, I can't remember where in California, but they just set up a new high-speed charger. It's going to use uh, six megawatt hours of electricity. It uses as much electricity with 32 charging ports as a 200,000 person city in California uses. Like this one charging station uses as much as San Bernardino, for example, and they want to build dozens and dozens of these things. The grid is never going to be able to handle this stuff. It's just not going to be able to do it. So um, it, it really is that, you know, it's kind of like a short between headset on all this stuff. It's, uh, you know, we, we're not using any kind of economics, any kind of logic, but we're going to force it on everybody. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, you do a real good job when you get into the global exports too. You, you, you know, when you talk about trains and planes and cargo ships, yeah. that the world trade's grown 2000 times since 1900. Yeah. And yet we're, we're starting to tinker with all that as well. Yeah. They want to take ships and, and uh, run them on either biofuels, which are twice as expensive, or they want to put in speed limits for ships and reduce their speed by 20%, which means you need about 200 billion more for 20% more ships. You got to train crews. You got delays on delivery. Uh, we got the airlines that want to do a thing called uh, um, sustainable aviation fuel, SAF. Right. Which, and and you look at this, it's got identical specs for jet fuel, um, you know, viscosity and energy density and all this stuff. And uh, when jet fuel burns today, you emit... Uh, three kilograms of carbon dioxide for every kilogram of fuel burned. Uh, that's a lot of carbon dioxide. That's as much as a plane on a long flight. But when you burn SAF, you burn the same amount. You emit three three times of car three three pounds of carbon dioxide for every pound of SAF burned. So I go, okay, where's the where's the CO two savings? Oh, they say I call it life cycle hocus hocus pocus. They say, oh, we're going to do it in the way we create it. We're going to use less energy. Well, wait a minute, it's got to go through a refinery. Um, you know, and, and oh, they say we're going to use co use cooking oil. So I've asked questions at a conference. Well, how much of the global aviation fuel can actually come from used cooking oil? Is it more than one percent? Nobody has an answer for that. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, we're going to need two hundred billion gallons a year of SAF, and we're going to use it from used cooking oil. Just you know, this stuff is 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 just kind of goofy. We're going to be reduced to like the North Koreans with our night buckets, you know, for yeah. fertilizer. It's just crazy. Well, Steve, this has been wonderful. Thank you. What a great job on the book. Green Breakdown, folks, the coming renewable energy failure. Um, it's excellent. Highly recommend it. Steve, thank you so much. What an honor to be able to talk with you. I, we Thanks, know you Ron. have to go. So if you if you need to sign off, you can or you can hang with us. But folks, I'd like to make one announcement. I will be presenting at the Successful Bookkeeper Virtual Summit on december 7th and 8th we will put a link in the show notes where you can register and ed what do we got on store for next week next week ron we are going to rerun our screw genomics episode but the week after that which is december 1st we will be doing our subscription economy update for 2023 so i will see you in 335 hours excellent This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage. Building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. Join us next week at 3 p.m. Eastern, that's noon Pacific. In the meantime, please visit us on the web at www.sage.com.
the soul of enterprise.com. 